I was meditating recently. I was following the breath in and out. I opened my attention to notice the sensations of my body in space. I gazed upon the visual field of darkness, and I listened to what sounds would come and go. I could hear the muffled sounds of someone talking in another room. My frame of mind was such that I was allowing the percepts of consciousness to appear and pass. I was simply an observer of my consciousness. I know that sounds occur strictly in my mind. Hair cells in the ears are triggered by waves of pressure. Impulses from both ears are compared by the brain to produce the sense of a sound coming from some location in space. In this case, I was hearing the sound produced by a conversation occurring through a couple of closed doors, a total distance of about 30 feet. What I could not deny was that what I was hearing seemed to be coming from that location. I could not simply experience the sound as taking place at the location of my head. There is no way to do that. The illusion that the sound is over there at that location outside of me is complete. This is a remarkable accomplishment of the brain. It got me thinking about the location of the conscious mind, about its extension in space. Where am I? In the elucidation of his doubts, Descartes concluded that his own existence was certain. He wrote, quote, I am, I exist, this is certain, but how often? As often as I think, for perhaps it would even happen if I should wholly cease to think that I should at the same time altogether cease to be, unquote. I agree, I am too. But where? In this skull? In this room? At this position in space and time? If I am to make progress on the building of this inquiry, I shall have to lay some ground rules as a foundation upon which to construct it. For these I return to those laid down in the very first episode of the podcast. In brief, the five assumptions I begin with are these. 1. I exist. Of this I am as certain as Descartes was. 2. Other conscious beings exist. That's where you come in, dear listener. 3. The material world exists. I reject a hard form of idealism. There is an objective universe that can be described through empirical methods. 4. Consciousness arises from the brain. That is, the physical substrate of consciousness is contained in the brain. And five, consciousness is a physical property of the brain. It emerges by some physical means. Thus, I reject the kind of dualism that would suggest that the mind lies outside of physics. With these assumptions in place, I can begin to wonder where my mind is located. There seems to be little question of where the physical substrate of my mind is located. It is located in Jesse's skull, which is currently located in Jesse's room at Jesse's house. And of course, if Jesse goes outside, the physical substrate which gives rise to me must assuredly go with him. Parenthetically, an exception to this might be realized if Jesse soon becomes annoyed with the progress of this essay, blows his brains all over the wall, and is subsequently carried outside and hauled away without them. Of course, in that situation, I no longer exist anyway, so the question of where is a moot one. In any case, the mystery of where the physical substrate for my mind is located in space and time is already settled by the aforementioned assumptions, but where am I? My perspective on the world is given by the sense organs of the body. For an obvious example, the visual field which I enjoy is informed by the retinas situated on the front of Jesse's face. As I have discussed previously, there is no guarantee that what I see is an accurate representation of the material world in front of me. In a sense, I cannot be, since the objective world does not look like anything. 
Colors and textures and shapes and such, as they are perceived by me, are constructs of neural activity, and only neural activity. But this is not the subject of our inquiry. Must I be located behind the eyes? Suppose the eyes were on the feet rather than the head. Would I not then have the sense that I am located there, behind the toes, as it were? What if I were wearing a pair of sophisticated goggles that showed me only what is in front of you, the view from a pair of cameras on a set of goggles that you are wearing? Now I see from your perspective and have the uncanny feeling of existing behind your eyes instead. The point is that my location cannot be assumed to be the location from which the sense organs gather their stimuli. Descartes himself, in proposing what has come to be called Cartesian dualism, assumed that there must be a kind of antenna localized in the brain, which is a point of contact in the material world with another world. The implication is that consciousness is not located in our universe at all. It is located elsewhere. In the last episode, I reported Frank Jackson's thought experiment, which he leveraged to conclude that qualia are not physical things. Where, then, are the qualia from Jackson's point of view? Either somewhere or nowhere, but not here, not in the physical universe. When we consider qualia as total abstractions, we can conceive of them as having no position in space or time at all. Where is the number three? There are three objects here on the table. Sure, one can write down the number three on a sheet of paper and utilize the concept for the purpose of arithmetic, but no one asks, perhaps with the exception of Plato and his philosophical descendants, where three or threeness is located. I see a bird in the air outside, soaring from one place to another, but where is its flight located? Is the flight in the wings? It's an inane question, but not entirely. The bird's flight is a real thing just as the three objects on the table are real, and really are three. I claim that my mind exists in the real physical world, just as the bird's flight occurs in the real physical world. The bird's flight is the process of moving through the air by means of its wings. My consciousness is the process of experiencing the relations among the neural functions of an integrated system. According to the Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, TICL, Consciousness is composed of meaningful contents established in the relationship between a large integrated system and some number of integrated and differentiated subsystems existing within that larger system. A subsystem is a group of neuronal elements within the system that has a higher degree of temporally integrated causality than the larger system has. Any set of elements with sufficient temporally integrated causality to rise above that of the system will produce meaning from the point of view of the system. Thus, my point of view, my mind at any moment in time, is the composition of meaningful relationships which coexist in Jesse's integrated thalamocortical system at that moment. The contents of my consciousness exist within me. So where am I? If I am a structure of causality, composed of a complex of internally nested structures of causality, then the question to be asked is where that causality is located in the world. It would seem necessary to assume that the causality, which ultimately must mean energy transfer, really is occurring in the brain. Thus, I am in Jesse's brain. No surprise there. But what are the implications of this? A much derided concept in the philosophy of mind is known as the homunculus, a kind of person inside the brain which observes its goings-on. In The Quest for Consciousness, Christoph Koch writes, quote, the intermediate level theory of consciousness accounts well for a widely shared and persistent feeling that there is a little person, a homunculus inside my head, who perceives the world through the senses, who thinks and who plans and carries out voluntary actions, 
Frequently ridiculed in science and philosophy, the idea of the homunculus is nevertheless profoundly appealing because it resonates with the everyday experience of who I am." Unquote. Why am I picturing Warwick Davis perched on a lump of brain matter with his feet dangling over the side? Moving right along, a bit later, Koch says, quote, The psychologist Fred Atneve cites two kinds of objections to the homunculus. The first is an aversion to dualism because it might involve a fluffy kind of non-matter quite beyond the pale of scientific investigation. This criticism does not apply here since the homunculus corresponds to the action of a real physical system situated in the frontal lobe and closely associated structures such as the basal ganglia. The second challenge has to do with the supposed regressive nature of the concept. Who, after all, is looking at the brain states of the homunculus? Wouldn't this require another homunculus inside the first one to control and plan its actions? Like a never-ending set of ever smaller Russian dolls, one stacked inside the other, this leads to an infinite regress with each homunculus being controlled by another, even smaller one." Unquote. For the TICL, the homunculus is not really the best metaphor. Furthermore, there is no such regress. The buck has to stop somewhere, and in the case of the TICL, that somewhere is the whole integrated system. Most importantly, the system here is not looking at the subsystems over there. The subsystems are a part of the system, so the system is sensing the meanings within it. The system cannot see or know itself, only that which falls within it. So no further system outside of it is necessary, in turn, to behold it. No regression, infinite or otherwise. Let us return to meditation. I am sat upon a cushion with my eyes closed. I am following each breath. I open my mind to allow whatever, whatever conscious contents appear to simply do so and be observed. I hear the sound of a person talking in the other room. At least that is how it seems. In fact, there is a person in the other room talking, and accordingly I am hearing sounds that seem to come from the other room. Thus the objective truth and the subjective truth seem to agree. But let's take a closer look at what is happening. In fact, my brain is receiving action potentials from the hair cells in my inner ears. It is using them to create sounds which occur in my mind. How can sounds occur inside my mind and be occurring 30, 30 feet away from my brain? The source of the pressure waves is some distance away in the real world, but the source of the sounds is a function of my nervous system. I cannot hear something 30 feet away. The stimulus is right here, not over there in the other room. The stimulus is pressure on my hair cells. A good example might be seeing a star in the night sky. You see it plainly with your own eyes, and yet the star is not there. It is somewhere else by now. If it is 1,000 light years away, then you are seeing where it was 1,000 years ago. The light emitted by it 1,000 years ago is bathing the earth today. The stimuli upon your retina are photons, right here, right now. But it is obvious to you that you are seeing something far away. If the things we see are in our mind, as they necessarily are, then they cannot also be 1,000 light years distant from the brain. Rather, the mind seems to stretch out to contain that great an expanse. Look around, my friend. Everything you see is in your mind. Does this mean that your mind is immense in size? In meditation, it is clear that the sensations of the body are within the overall composition of consciousness. The body concept, its form and feel, all exists inside the mind along with the whole rest of the subjective world. What a beautiful paradox. The body produces the mind, inside of which the body occurs. It's like an M.C. Escher painting. According to the TICL, the traditional way of thinking about the place of consciousness in the world is turned inside out. 
Other theories, like global neuronal workspace, speak of areas of the brain gaining access to the broadcast coming from other areas of the brain. Signals from over there arrive over here. So from here, we are meant to be experiencing something over there. In the TICL, everything in consciousness is inside of a single united causal structure. Everything I see and hear and feel is inside of me. Even my body and my concept of self are contained inside of me. I am thus an immensity, and so are you. But we are not so large in the objective world. The causal exchange occurs within the confines of the brain. It grows not in accordance with its perceptions and imaginings. When you see a meadow stretched out in front of you with a neat row of trees as its backdrop, you are seeing this landscape in your mind. You cannot see across objective space, not at all. You can only see across a visual construct in subjective space. When you stroll across the meadow toward that line of trees, you are actually moving through the landscape of your mind. What size is a conscious mind? Imagine looking out across the meadow with the line of trees behind it. Now imagine turning around 360 degrees and seeing the woods across the road, a field of corn, a distant farmhouse flanked by silos, and all of it beneath a dome of clouded sky. If you enlarge your perspective to encompass that whole space, how could your mind have grown to such proportions? I have alluded many times in the past to the concept of relativity. Meaning is the relationship between two or more things. Thus, my answer to the question is that your mind has not grown at all. Rather, the self has shrunk. Back in episode 9, I explored the concept of the self. I said, quote, It looks to me like there are two distinct concepts of self. The first is the self as point of view. As long as we are conscious, we are identical to this point of view upon the contents of our consciousness. The thing which answers to I in the statement, I see a bird, is the self as point of view. The second concept of self is an illusory construct that seems to answer to I in the statement, I am anxious. Here, the first self, the point of view, is mistakenly identified with the self-construct. We each have a sense of our past experiences and how they have led to the present moment, but the point of view can only access the past through the present recall or reinstatement of their traces in the present. In this sense, self as point of view has no past. Rather, it exists as the present, whatever the present is from its point of view. The self-construct has a past and a future. It has hopes and fears. It has goals, which I, the point of view, am aware of and feel belong to me. Finally, the self-construct has a personality, has modes of thinking." Unquote. For the current discussion, I conclude that the first self, the point of view, is what is meant by the mind, by consciousness. The second self, the self-construct, exists within consciousness. By means of meditative practice or psychedelics, the self-construct can be overcome. Experience can be had in its absence. The conscious mind is a structure of integrated causality in time. The causal structure exists in the objective world, can be understood through physics, and has definite size and borders. The self-construct is a component. The construct can vary in its own proportions within the overall structure. It can mean more, or less, or even nothing at all if we are to believe those who have experienced its transcendence. But I am not my self-construct. The I that answers to I exist, of that I am certain, is not a construct. It is the mind itself, the point of view to which the contents of my consciousness are manifest. It appears that the question is not where is the mind located inside of me, but where am I located inside of my mind? When I enlarge the spatial dimensions of my perspective, as occurs out there in the world, gazing upon the meadow and the great sky beyond it, 
I have only enlarged my mind in that I have shrunk the self-construct within its spatial imagination. It is worth considering where I am in time as well as space. There isn't so much mystery with regard to where Jesse is in objective time, but what about imagining the future or contemplating the past? Dean Bonamano discusses the human capacity for mental time travel in his book, Your Brain is a Time Machine. He writes, quote, While people with prefrontal lesions can follow instructions and perform many tasks normally, they struggle to execute plans that require multiple steps and flexibly adapt as the circumstances change. The prefrontal cortex also contributes to our ability to make long-term plans, delay gratification, and engage in mental time travel, so people with prefrontal lesions are not the type to be saving much for retirement. One study used the temporal discounting task to examine how people with lesions to the prefrontal cortex balance immediate and long-term rewards. Compared to healthy controls in people who suffered lesions to other parts of the brain, prefrontal cortex patients were significantly more likely to choose smaller short-term rewards in lieu of larger delayed rewards. Similarly, a number of brain imaging studies indicate that the degree of activity in parts of the prefrontal cortex is correlated with how long people are willing to delay gratification in temporal discounting tasks. Brain imaging studies of healthy humans also suggest that the prefrontal cortex contributes to our ability to engage in mental time travel. For example, when people were asked to imagine a future scenario based on the name of a person and place that they knew, activity in the prefrontal cortex was higher than when they were asked to simply create sentences with those same words." Unquote. You might object to the idea of mental time travel as having anything at all to say about the perception of real time. Fair enough. But keep in mind, you may be just imagining across an expanse of time as you contemplate the future, but look around. You are also just imagining that you can see across space. Mm -hmm.